Welcome to The Unconventional Path, Secrets to Igniting Your Business with Bela and Mike. Hi, I'm Bela Musitz, former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and now the David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Clarkson University in Potsdam, New York. And I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences in Münster, Germany. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you enjoy the podcast. The two of us want to take the lessons we've learned over the last three decades as entrepreneurs, investors, managers, and professors and leverage our network of interesting friends, former students, business partners, and others we've met along the way in our life's journey to bring you interesting stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship, and the people that take unconventional paths to find happiness at work and in life. Before we get to today's guest, a quick thank you to our sponsors, Clarkson University and the Münster University of Applied Sciences. And now let's jump right into today's interview with Drew Shepard. Drew's had a long and illustrious career at about the widest variety of startups and big companies that I've ever seen. He's an interesting human being and a genuinely nice person. So here we go. Welcome to the Unconventional Path Podcast. This is Mike Wasserman, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by Drew Shepard. Drew, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on your podcast, Mike. I appreciate it. Drew's joining us from beautiful Columbus, Ohio, United States of America. How's the weather? Weather has been up and down, honestly, here in Columbus. We sometimes uh, we get lots of snow and cold, and sometimes it gets nice and warm. So we've been having that here this January for sure. Excellent. You want to give the uh, quick thumbnail introduction, kind of tell us what you do for a living and maybe kind of a brief thumbnail of your career? Yeah, I'll kind of work from the present backwards right now. Uh, I work for the uh, digital agency. I kind of run the back office functions within that agency. Uh, we make websites. We make mobile apps for a variety of clients around the country. And I have staff planning, recruiting, HR, finance, office management, all of the things kind of behind client delivery. And if you kind of go backwards from that, I've done some startups in the healthcare industry, some smaller privately held companies, a different digital agency. I've done a stint in contract research spent some time in Silicon Valley, and prior to that, worked actually at General Motors and the Environmental Protection Agency. I have an undergraduate degree from Purdue University in mechanical engineering and a master's degree in managing technology from Rensselaer Polytech. So there's my thumbnail. Awesome. Thanks, Drew. Um, would you describe yourself as entrepreneurial? Yeah, I, I would do that. The I like creating things. I like managing growth. And I think those are keys to an entrepreneurial attitude. I mean, I've taken jobs at pre-revenue startups uh, where we were really trying to create a product or a service that didn't exist and, and make it into something. For me, the exciting challenge and what I see with when I think of entrepreneurial people is they're creating either a service or a product that really resonate with people. And so they're trying to get that out into the world on a commercially successful basis. Cool. Let's go back to the early years. Little Drew, uh, where'd you grow up? Any entrepreneurs or history of entrepreneurship in the family? I grew up uh, actually just outside of Columbus, about a half hour north of where I live now, uh, in central Ohio. And actually, after you know thinking about it and growing up some, my father actually is, is an entrepreneur he started uh, his career as a chemistry teacher and then decided that he wanted to move into law and went to law school. And he was and still is his own boss, his own boss with a small practice that he runs. Cool. That fits. Definitely. Interesting. Um, 
high school, did you do anything entrepreneurial there? You know, in high school, I didn't really probably think about nor understand at that point in my life and probably, you know, a good part of my college career didn't really think a lot about entrepreneurship in those environments. In high school, I was I was at a much smaller high school and I was just heavily involved in, in a range of activities between the football team and doing some, you know, drama club and things like that. That took up plenty of time. And so I, I wasn't in a mindset to even think about those interests or skills. What about college? Kind of, I mean, you're an engineer, you're at Purdue, right? And did they talk about innovation or were you doing anything innovative uh, at that point in your life? From what I recall, uh, you know, I went to college just a few years ago, uh, roughly 25, give or take. And, the, you know, the in talking about innovation and in my focus, I, I wanted to finish school in four years. And my focus was really on the, you know, the work that we were doing. And when they talked about innovation, they were talking about problem solving, which is something that's really important when you talk about entrepreneurs and problem solving. But I didn't, I am certain that it was available to me, but I didn't have the the foresight to start looking into what kind of other opportunities they offered in the college level to understand business creation and value creation that come along with entrepreneurship. Like I said, I'm sure it was available. I think there's a much better focus on that now for people in schools as we've, we've learned how important that is economically. But at that time, I was not getting involved nor paying attention. So, okay, and then you went to college and you went to the Environmental Protection Agency, right? You went from Columbus to Ann Arbor, as I recall, right? That is correct. I took, a, I took that job. It was with an engineering degree, and it was a, a really interesting setup for, for those listeners who remember long ago, there was a big push for government and industry partnerships. They wanted to create new, more fuel-efficient vehicles, and they were growing that on the Environmental Protection Agency side, and they hired some younger people to help with that project. And what was interesting to me being a car guy, lifelong car guy, then going to work for the Environmental Protection Agency seemed a bit of a, a contrast. But what I found was they were trying to solve big problems, back to that problem solving. And they wanted to really work together and bring together the resources of the government and the industry to look at the challenge of more fuel efficient vehicles. And what I learned there was I really met some smart and passionate people they happen to be on the government side uh, that you wouldn't necessarily expect, but they really were about problem solving and believing in what they were doing. What I also learned was, as you would expect in the in the 90s in the Environmental Protection Agency, it was slow and big and it was hard to make decisions and to get things done. So I learned that about myself as well, that that was not an environment I was going to thrive in. So not a little glimmer of innovativeness and innovation there, but nothing entrepreneurial. Where did that come into play? Where did these feelings of need to be an entrepreneur, need to be innovative, where did that come in at your career? That came in as I started the, the place that I went after the Environmental Protection Agency was General Motors. So I moved over to the, the private side. But what I started to learn about myself, and it probably took five or six years of working in those larger environments, was that I found that I wanted to be able to get things done and solve problems at a high rate. And so what I started then, you know, not necessarily deliberately, but was a progression to smaller companies. And so when I was, uh, it was the year 2000, and uh, I had some contacts out in Silicon Valley, and I actually uh, took a job. Uh, to move out to California into Silicon Valley 
because what I found was that going to those much smaller places where they were led by entrepreneurs who you could learn a lot from um, and you could be a part of that excitement in solving those problems and bringing those things to market, that's when I really learned that that environment and that ecosystem was one that I really enjoyed and I was able to contribute to on a faster pace than what I was getting early in my career. So what, I guess, was that move to, I guess at the time that was Palm, right? It was actually Handspring. Founders of Palm that had spun out to create Handspring to create small handhelds uh, out in uh, Mountain View, California. And would you view that as kind of the highlight in the place where this really sparked uh, the interest in startups for you? Absolutely. When I went out there, there were just a couple hundred people in the company. It was small. It was fast growing. I was lucky to get out there when I did as as things were occurring. And one of the highlights for me was being able to work with those really smart people with a can-do attitude. They worked hard. And uh, I was I was there and tasked with being the program manager for actually one of the first commercial smartphones. If you remember, the Trio came out. Uh, the Trio came out a little bit before the iPhone. There's some trivia and history for people that are listening. Uh, but we brought that to market and it was a great, as you said, it was a highlight. It was a great time where we were just not letting any barrier get in our way. We were going to solve the problem of getting that that small mobile computer into an end user's hand. You know, I still have mine and it works. That is awesome. Honestly, it, it powers up. And uh, when I moved over here to Germany, I uh, had the Wasserman... Uh, museum of old electronics and my my trio still worked and i kept it it's in my uh, mother-in-law's basement so if you need that for your archives let me know thank you that is fantastic cool okay so now you're kind of in the in silicon valley you're you're dealing with startups and this was really kind of in the go-go days of um of the it world um what motivated you to make this jump from General Motors to handspring this kind of at the time not super well known brand right some superstar people behind it untested technology um, that's a big risk you moved your family and went west what was the what were the motivators that's a great question and I think the the biggest answer comes it was a two part answer in understanding myself. And what I needed to be fulfilled at that point in my career was to go after some really big challenges in a fast-paced environment. And I think that what motivated me was was myself knowing that I needed that as my next step. And then the opportunity to work with those people, as you said, there were some very heavy hitters in the tech industry in California that were leading the company. And I had the opportunity to join that. And in fact, one of the things that, uh, you know, rolling with the changes is a really important thing that I think people have to understand is they're, they're trying to make these changes. As I'm starting to try to play to my strengths, try to play to my interests, I remember I was there and at that point they did a two-day interview cycle for people that were going to run the big programs. And one of the people I sat down with was a director or a VP in the company and he sat down and he said pretty much what you just went through, that is, you work for General Motors, one of the biggest, slowest companies around. And you're out here talking to us about a position that's critical to our company. You have a minute or two to convince me why we should even have this interview. And I said kind of what I just said to you was that I know what my strengths are. I know that I can contribute. I want the challenge and that the skills that I was bringing around at that time, project and program management and problem solving and people relationships, 
we're going to translate across industries and that we're going to translate across company sizes. And so when we had that conversation, it was a great conversation. And that really, as you said, had me made the decision easy to uproot my family, leave the Midwest and go to California. And you, you get the job, you get there, you start. Did you ever have one of those moments where like, I don't belong here. I don't deserve to be here. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I'm not trained for this. Did you ever have doubts or was it all everything's roses and candy? It is definitely not roses and candy. I think that the, the honest answer absolutely is that you run into those challenges and you run into those doubts. And one of the things that I focused on was, and this was such a great environment, was when you would run into those problems, uh, I got, you know, I got a little bit of advice from one person there that said pretty much about my third day there, it felt like he was telling me not to bring forth information for a problem we discovered. And what he was telling me was learn as much as you can about the problem so that you can start to formulate recommended ways to solve it before you run the problem up the flagpole. And it was a great little piece of advice. And what I found was that the people in that environment, when when you sat down and presented somebody with a problem, they understood it was it was absolutely about, okay, we've we've gotten to this point. We need to take a quick look at how we got here so we don't repeat it. But 80% of our energy should be towards that solution. So when those doubts or those moments came up, you know, I didn't, I did not have a background in wireless technology. And yet I had an incredibly smart, very friendly man on the team who had a PhD, was just brilliant. And when, I, when he would come in and say, hey, we have a problem, and he would explain very briefly, and I would say, you, you need to just step back and go about 10 feet up, just frame this up for about three minutes in a way that I can track with you so that I can understand the magnitude of the problem. So what I did was in, uh, in conversation and relationships with people, get the information you need to manage right through those doubts onto something productive and moving the ball forward for the project that you're on or the problem that you're tackling. Cool. So this brings me to an interesting question and I've known you what, 20 years. And it's been really interesting to watch your career um, evolve and you evolve from your perspective, how has your knowledge and skill set evolved over the last 20, 25 years? What do you know now that you didn't know then, essentially? Wow, how long do we have? That could be a very long list. True. Maybe uh, give me the top three. I'll give you a top couple that come to mind. The first one is, I think, in learning to listen, because when you're energetic and you want to solve problems, uh, then then what one thing that really helps is learning listen to what people are saying. In parts of my career, I worked remotely and I couldn't read body language. I'm having conversations with somebody in another country, somebody in another time zone. I had to actively listen to the words and phrases they were using to understand their attitude, their approach that day, because I'm not looking them in the face. Now, there's a lot more opportunity for video conferencing now than there was in some of those where you get some better feedback on the conversation. But listening becomes critical to becoming successful in, in what I think has evolved with me. Another one is to understand and respect personality and cultural differences. I've, I've worked, like I said, with, with people around the world. And at the same time, the person sitting next to you could just have a very different personality. And acknowledging that and taking a moment to say, how best do we work productively on this problem together 
is a good way to set a groundwork to get a, get away from some of the challenges that can arise with different working styles because then you're wasting energy on figuring out how to work together later on when things hit the fan as opposed to having figured that out early in the working relationship. I think probably one or two more come to mind, paying attention to your local business scene. That's like I said, when I was in college, I wasn't really paying attention. That's on me. I've been in Columbus now, moved back about 15 years ago. It's got a very supportive and busy venture capital scene, entrepreneur scene. There's meetups, there's weekends, there's so many things going on. And, you know, the headlines two years ago, uh, McKesson bought one of our, our companies here, Cover My Meds. It was over a billion dollars, right? The headlines for the unicorns take, um, you know, they take center stage, but there are so many things going on and so many people working on fostering that environment. You know, I wish earlier, as you said, even in college, I would have paid more attention. As a side note, last fall, we had another one, Root Insurance here in Columbus, uh, did a Series D, raised $100 million, giving it over a billion dollar valuation. So there's some things, at least in the Columbus local business scene, that are working very well. And I feel very fortunate to be around that and to be able to see it and learn from it, be a part of it. The last thing I think I would say has helped me evolve is just finding things that I'm passionate about and working towards them. The example, as you as you said, you've known me for 20 years. In that 20 years, I've really developed first on the side and then in my professional growth, uh, an understanding and an aptitude around the finance side of the business. My degree is in engineering. I'm very happy about that. But what I found was when I was in project management and program management and when I was managing teams, understanding that the financial side of the business, which is critical to the long-term success has to play a hand as well as the people and product and all of those other pieces that you have to manage as part of it. Eventually, I started to do that more and more, and, and now I'm heavily involved in the financial activities of the business I work for now. So there's a couple of examples of how my my skill set and things that I have done, how I've learned over that past 25 years. Cool. Let's build on that. Um, you've been involved in several different emerging businesses and in different industries. Some have succeeded, some have failed. Uh, and we can talk about that a little bit uh, without naming names. But um, what do you see as the biggest challenges in growing a business? So I think especially at the early, early part of this, because I know that's part of the focus of the podcast, is really people taking the time to uh, listen to the right people to get advice. Uh, you know, when you're first starting out, understanding your market. When, I'll give you some examples of some places that I worked. As you said, some have succeeded, some have not. Uh, in one place, uh, the the person who was was running the business, he was absolutely convinced that he had a great product that the world needed, and he spent a long time documenting a lot of the detail around that product and how that product was going to act and, and thinking through a lot of use cases. And he was doing that relying on, he had many years of experience in the industry. One of the other places I went, what the, the driving person behind that business did was he had a business idea. And then what he did was he mocked it up. It was, it was not anything functional. It was just straight uh, prototypes. And he went and put that in front of his target market, put that in front of the people in the industry he was going to go for and what actually happened was the great business idea that he had, they weren't really interested in, but they were interested in something tangential that he had just mocked up as part of his prototype to make it look more real. And that actually changed the approach that he was taking to solving big business problems in this industry because he listened and understood the market 
and prototyped a little bit to go out and get that feedback early on. So I think that's a big thing to to think about is understanding, getting that feedback from the people you're targeting in whatever way you can to understand that you are really solving a problem to them that ultimately they will pay you to solve. Yeah, this is customer-centered design, and this is early applications of uh, lean startup approach, prototype, fail fast, get things in front of your potential customers and see what they say, uh, and really design to what people need, not what you as the inventor or the designer think they need. Uh, so that's a great story, and I think that's something that really is an amazing piece of advice um, that you actually live through, which is which is cool. A lot of the the listeners, I think, may not have had that close up experience as you did, but it really is legit advice. I think. I really think it is, and and there's yeah, there's a lot of information on it. There's a lot of how to on it, but that goes back to that that comment about listening. I am certain that you know many of the people that have great industry expertise. Um, whether they're the driving force behind it, they may have a blind spot or especially someone, you know, who's maybe not as far along in their career, who is really out to to tackle something they found as a big need. There are going to be people out there that are willing to talk with you and help you build that solution. So you have a much higher probability of moving forward successfully. And I just can't stress enough how, as you said, I lived through that in the successful side. I've lived through it on the not so successful side and seen it up close and personally. Yeah. You are not your customer. And this is one of the things that I really work on with, with my students um, is that you may think this is great, but the people who are going to actually buy it don't. And that's where, as you said, listening and empathy, these these um, these insights really come into play because you do have everybody has biases and uh, understanding those biases and overcoming them is, is, I think, critical to entrepreneurial success. Tell me about a failure, and maybe you don't need to get specific because we don't want to embarrass anybody, but you know, when were you really frustrated and things weren't working, and how did you respond to that? So that's a great question, and I won't get too specific, uh, but to, to the point of, uh, to your point of listening and understanding what you are doing, in one of the products I helped develop, we worked very hard. We did a lot of research on the end user and we talked to the end users and we developed this product and we launched this product. And what we failed to account for was, although you can talk about your distribution channels and the partners that are going to help give you a tailwind to get that product really to be a big success, what we failed to understand was the magnitude of the impact that could have. And so we had a great product and customers absolutely loved it. And what we found was we had not done enough groundwork to kind of grease the skids, if you will, to get that to the right people at the right time so that they could realize that value and support the product. And it was a a very eye-opening experience as you sit there and think, why isn't this thing, you know, essentially flying off the shelves to use the phrase? And then when you sit back and you realize and you dig a little bit more, that, like I said, those kind of intermediate channels or partners or other things that can, can really grow, and that's what you would expect to happen, they can also help you with that start. And sometimes you need that start and a little bit of inertia and a little bit of traction to get to a point where then you have the acceleration that you really want. We had overlooked those first couple of steps because we were focused on our ability to run and we just didn't get there. Interesting. 
maybe think for a minute about some of the keys that you've learned firsthand to grow a business uh, and making a business successful, maybe in terms of people or culture or how to get people to be innovative, uh, how to apply technology useful. What stands out in your, as you look back on your career, as maybe some key uh, dimensions or uh, aspects of, of, of success? Wow, there's a lot of that's a that's a really big multi-part question. I you know at, at the personal level for people trying to grow a business uh, early on, that focus and time management is just critical as you're trying to get through some of those early pieces. Understanding, as I said, your partners that are going to help you. What are your competitors doing? You know, being very realistic about decision cycles both within your company and ecosystem as well as your customers' ecosystem. And then, and then very realistic about your ability to execute. And then from that, your ability to set expectations and meet those with your customers. I think that's been a really big learning and a critical thing to success for what I mean in the challenges in growing these businesses. And then as, as you start to grow that kind of delegation, you know, uh, like I said, that time management to really get the key people doing what they need to do. Uh, another thing that comes to mind is, um, early, that early hiring, when you're talking about growing a business and making it bigger, I mean, obviously you need to hire people who are filling gaps in your skills. You need to hire people that have expertise for the place you're going that you might not have. At the same time, I believe it's important to understand sometimes you're going to have to hire people that can get things done and can easily cover many needs that you have. And they're more almost of the generalist to help you with this business right? It's that getting people on a bus and then figuring out where they sit. Uh, I think that's very important to success and growth. It, you know, there's all these other pieces, as you know, with with the culture of the company and making sure you have the working capital and all of those pieces. Um, but if you are hiring people and then, for example, you're not acknowledging when a hire isn't working out, you know, under at a, at a smaller company, one bad attitude can really be a problem for the entire company and employee set. Now, I'm not saying you should silence people that are questioning or they're brainstorming or helping really drive good, hard discussions. But if a person really is creating a negative space in their cancerous organization, that needs to be addressed quickly and early. So I think that I just hit on a lot of answers to your question. Yep. Great. Switch gears a little bit. What role have mentors played in your career? I mean, you've had such a, a unconventional path, right? Um, how have mentors helped you navigate or have you really just done it on your own? Uh, I've been very lucky that I've had both formal and informal mentors. And when I say informal, you know, it's that it's that piece of advice you get from somebody in a company that they're just trying to help you out and keep you from stepping on a landmine, looking at those people that have been around a little bit more and not being afraid to ask them for uh, help or ask them questions. At the same time, I've had a couple of people that through the course of my career on a connected on a more personal level. Um, when I moved to California, one person who was very successful out there and she to this day, I can still call her. We talk, I don't know, every six months at least. Um, I can present her with a business challenge that I'm seeing and her ability to very quickly get down to the important parts of that. You know, a lot of times I'd like to think that I've already thought those through, but man, she just asks some of those hard questions right to it. And so being able to notice when someone is obviously very helpful to you 
And at the same time, being respectful of, you know, they've got a lot of other things going on, but they've played a big part in my career. And you can learn a lot, you know, the the joke about you can learn a lot from a bad boss as, as much as you can from a good boss, making sure that I'm focused on when I'm in an environment where there's a lot of things happening. I'm always trying to take the time to pay attention a little bit to say, what kinds of things are new that I am seeing here? And what mental notes can I take? Because there's something interesting going on that I haven't seen before so that I can learn from that person or that situation to make myself a little smarter. And usually those people who are at the center of that are happy to get lunch or a cup of coffee so you can delve a little bit more on that and understand from their expertise and their point of view why they're approaching it the way they are. And then you can internalize that and try to build on that in things that you're doing. Cool. If you had complete control over your next career move, what would you do next? Well, first off, that's a great question. Uh, I am actually really enjoying where I am. And I think that's important for people to remember is that, you know, that's sometimes what's driven changes for me. So the, the short answer is I'm actually in a very good space. But one of the things I'm trying to do with part of my next career move is actually taking the time to actively help and advise other people. And I've been very fortunate in my career, as you said, I've been to different industries and different geographies and a lot of different roles. And so I'm actively right now working towards that with a few small companies where I'm playing just a, a quiet side advisory role to some of the key people in those companies, just because I know where they are with the, the curve of their company. They have a lot of things in front of them. They have a lot of moving parts. And because I'm a little bit disconnected from the noise, uh, I'm able to offer them some more objective advice. So from a career move standpoint, it's more of a bolstering of what I'm doing where I am, but also giving back a little bit. Great. Flip this a little bit. I get a lot of former students and friends of friends, and they work for big companies, and they want to do something more entrepreneurial. What advice, given that you've been through that process yourself, what advice would you give to people who are contemplating making a career change from a large company to a small company? That's a great question. You're right. I did that myself. I think there are trade-offs there, and I would have them really take some time to think about that. At a large company, there can be many different roles available, and you can start building experience seeing different parts of that business, being involved in different parts of that business while you're all inside the same company in the same industry and building expertise. And so that could really pay a lot of dividends for you as your career evolves. You could move to that smaller company and there are trade-offs to doing so. When you get to that smaller company, all of those things I was talking about, they could happen in the course of a week. You can be involved in multiple different parts of the business through just things that are happening. And so I would say that to, to those people, really think about what the opportunities are in front of you versus what the opportunities are uh, around in smaller companies, meaning outside of the one you are with. I think another thing I would say is, and I've seen this in businesses, it applies to those people as they're wrestling with those personal decisions, as well as in the business segment, as I would say, don't confuse action and progress. And I know people talk about this in various different ways, but action and progress are two very different things. And in one example, in one place that I worked, one of the one of the leaders in the company, he was absolutely seen as a leader because he made decisions and he said, here's what we are going to do. However, many of us noticed that he was wrong a lot. So even though he was seen as a leader because he made decisions 
and he took action, he wasn't actually creating progress for the company. And so I would say whether you're looking at that from a personal standpoint, taking action, I'm going to make a change, I'm going to go to that smaller company, that may not be long-term progress for you, even short-term progress, depending on what your true motivations and career goals are. So I would say trying to keep from confusing those is an important piece of information. That's great advice, Drew. What about outside of work? You've got some interests that are outside of the what I would call your work interests uh, that I think have had a role in your career success. You want to talk about uh, maybe a couple of those? Yeah, I think a couple things come to mind. I'll, I'll piggyback onto what we were just saying on advice for the younger people. Somewhere along the line, someone introduced me to this this concept, and there's diagrams you can find online, and it talks about looking at things that you love to do, things that you're good at, things that the world needs, you know, things that can be a profession, breaking it down versus a passion and a mission and all those things. And I didn't know when I was younger that I, I could really start to segment these, understand what my motivations were. And so to your point, early on in my career, I think there was a lot of right brain and left brain uh, conflict going on. Uh, I did, as I mentioned, in high school and it actually progressed into college. Uh, there was um, theater and drama. There was acting involved, uh, a musical, uh, a musical side, doing musicals and a, a singing dancing group. And I think that's kind of helped me to find some balance between those things. And some of that acting carried on as I started to develop my career. It kind of went to the wayside as my career went further and a family started and things like that. Uh, but at the same time, in doing so here later in my career, you know, I really like planning trips. I really like doing projects and getting things done. And I found a way to do that by getting involved in a nonprofit where we actually help children uh, that are afflicted with HIV in Central America. And so this year, for the third year in a row, I will coordinate a trip and lead a trip down into Honduras with a service team uh, where we'll work towards that mission of the nonprofit. And so to your point, those are kind of outside of the mainstream. You know, I've always had the habit of being a car guy and and then you kind of overlay that with that that enjoyment of the performing arts. And now as I've evolved some into the those service trips, it's finding ways for me to find fulfillment that are not necessarily directly tied to my career. But in a lot of ways, they can help me. Uh, many years ago, I coached a young soccer team, as will happen if you're a parent and one of your kids plays soccer. You will likely get asked to be the coach. And I accidentally said yes. <laughs> what I learned about in that environment, you know, you talk about a multi-stakeholder environment where it's a Saturday morning and you have 14 kindergarten girls plus all of their parents, plus you have an official that is probably a teenager trying to maintain control of a soccer game. It's very hard to do. That stakeholder environment can get complex and you're dealing with personality types and all of those things come into then when you turn around then on Monday morning, when you're back in the workplace, you're again, most likely in a very complex stakeholder environment where you're dealing with different personality types and different goals and different people all trying to keep, you know, keep control of the soccer game. So some of those outside activities have a helped me to grow as a person. They've allowed me to explore things that I'm passionate about outside of my career, but they've also very significantly helped me to develop in my career and some of the skill sets that you need and some of the understanding that help you to get things done in the workplace. Cool. Any other points you want to make or words of wisdom that uh, you have to offer that I failed to ask you about? 
Wow. I think that we've hit on a couple of good things. You know, if, if, if you talk about the people that you're talking to as students where you are teaching or young entrepreneurs that are coming to you for advice, I just think that, you know, you said it and I said it, which is talk to people, get information, listen, because you'll be able to avoid so many of the simple, basic problems that people that don't do that run into. You will just set yourself up for success, whether it is starting a company or just career or skill development. There are so many resources out there available. Take advantage of them. Awesome. Last question. And this wasn't on the list that I gave you, but I just thought of it. And I don't know if you can do this or not. What's the favorite car you owned? The favorite car that I have owned is actually, that's really hard. That's like asking about your favorite child. Mm-hmm. But I, mean, I, I know you can pick one, but I'm not going to ask you. No, it's it, it it's actually very easy. Um, I have a Volkswagen bus from 1972. And uh, I have brought this bus back to life. It was it was on its last legs and it has been a multi-year project. I'm not restoring it because that's too much pressure. But what the reason that is my favorite vehicle is because, yes, it is fun to drive. It is not a sports car. I've had some sports cars, but this bus everywhere that I go, I get waves. I get smiles. I cannot stop for gas without getting a conversation from someone at the gas station who either spent a summer in one their parents had one or their best friend had one and they went on a crazy road trip. So it's the car that without meaning to seems to make a lot of people smile and relax and think a little bit. And with young children, they have no idea what it is and their eyes just get very wide. So that will be the one that I will pick as my answer to your question. Love it. Drew, thanks a million for uh, spending time with uh, me and our view listeners. I appreciate it very much. And I look forward to, uh, following the next steps of your career with uh, interest in, uh, in uh, I don't know what else I would say to that, but I'm interested in seeing what happens next in your world. And I wish you uh, good luck and good health. Well, thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. And I hope your listeners have enjoyed this and yeah, we will be, I'm sure we'll just have to see each other soon somewhere on some continent. Definitely look forward to it. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye Drew. Well, Mike, I thought that was a great, great conversation with Drew. Uh, I really enjoyed listening to that. So, Mike, uh, how did you uh, how did you meet Drew? That's an interesting question, Bela. Um, a long time ago, uh, when I was getting my PhD, I guess my second year, um, the this couple showed up, uh, and Drew's better half was in uh, Lori was in my, the same graduate program in organizational psychology that my better half, Sandy, uh, was enrolled in uh, just a year a year or two behind. Um, so that's how I met Drew. It's kind of, we were both the spouses of industrial organizational psychology PhD students at Michigan State in, uh, in East Lansing. And Drew was working in Ann Arbor at the time. Uh, he'll, he told the story about working for the EPA, and that's where I was um, kind of went to high school and, and did my undergrad. Um, so we kind of hit it off and he's a car guy and I'm kind of a car guy and we kind of hit it off. Um, so we kind of kept in touch through the years. And in fact, in one of my entrepreneurial endeavors with my friend, Doug Wise, who will be in a future podcast, and we opened up this kind of, um, hopefully what was, we were hoping to be in kind of an alternative approach to auto retail. And we opened a Subaru dealer. 
in Auburn, Maine. Drew was really excited, and he was customer number one. So brand new building, and and uh, and he bought a Subaru WRX STI, um, and uh, and that was fun. So I go way back with Drew and uh, kind of watched his career develop from a. Um, from an arm's length, but uh, really was interesting when he worked for, you, you'll hear in the interview, he worked for Handspring and he had me do some cold weather testing for some of their products. Um, so it was really neat to watch him turn into the, the kind of the wise, sage, um, entrepreneurial. He's always been kind of the grown up in the room, I think, in his last several startups that he's worked at, but it's been fun to watch him. So that was a long, long answer to a short question. Yeah, I thought I thought the interview was really good and, and this notion of being the... Uh more seasoned person in the room, I think is an interesting one, right? Because a lot of people think about, can I be an entrepreneur? Can I be entrepreneurial, but not be the founder of a business? And, you know, what value do I bring to a business as employee number two, three, or four, or employee number 100 even? And uh, I think uh, that's an interesting conversation. Uh, and we've had a couple of other guests who have not been founders, but have, have been early employees and businesses. And clearly, when you listen to them, they have the entrepreneurial drive, they have the entrepreneurial skill set, and they have that uh, desire to take something and move it forward. And um, what are your thoughts on that, Mike? The world needs people like that, and we should call them entrepreneurs too, even though they may not be founders. Um, they, they take risks with their career, right? The paydays might be uncertain and... Uh, the hours are long and they have to do all kinds of things from um, putting together financial statements uh, at the end of the quarter to cleaning toilets. Uh, they're doing the same things that the founders are doing. They're just part of the team and they're a critical part of the team. So I, I think it's a really important role. And again, as those folks get more seasoned, uh, they take a leadership role in kind of startups that are maybe started by younger people with less experience. That's a critical role. So I think uh, I think we've seen this pattern in a couple of different interviews uh, that that these entrepreneurs may not be founders, but they're just critical pieces of entrepreneurial activity and the creation of value for uh, for lots of different stakeholders: the employees, the founders themselves, the community that that these these companies are are operating in. So I think it's I think it's huge, and I think it's under underappreciated. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think that in the last uh, five to 10 years, large companies have also become, become appreciative of the entrepreneurial skill set. And they too have gotten very interested in hiring people who have that skill set. So if you look around at a lot of entrepreneurial degree programs in the country, many of the graduates from there do not go to a startup. Uh, they get scapped up by larger companies because larger companies are realizing that that skill set, the opportunity recognition, the willingness to take some risks, all of those skill traits are very, very valuable if a large company is going to survive and keep moving forward and compete with these uh, smaller startups. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a cool approach, I think, to, uh, to thinking about this. And now what we have is a two-way street, right? So we've got People who are entrepreneurial but start off with the financial security and the training opportunities and the name recognition of working at a large company, then going at a later part of their career or uh, to you know taking the unconventional path and moving into uh, to a smaller company, and vice versa. We have people who have entrepreneurial interests, and yeah, they're getting snapped up in the pharmaceutical industry or manufacturing, 
because they want people with this innovative mindset and risk-taking ability. So it's neat. I think um, even 10 years ago, Bela, and, and you know, I'm interested to hear what your perspectives are. We didn't see we, the, the, the boundary was not porous. There was no going back and forth uh, between these two worlds. You were either an entrepreneur or you were a big company person, and it was a lot harder to move back and forth. I think you're right. It was a lot harder to, to move back and forth. Big company people tended to stay at large companies, and uh, small company folks tended to stay at small companies. But I think what's happened is that I think small companies always recognized some of the value of bringing in folks who uh, have been part of a larger organization because there's certain processes and structure and things that as any organization grows, you need to start to uh, in, instill within that business. Uh, but I think the, the real light that has popped is that larger companies have come to recognize if they want to remain competitive, if they want to uh, stay in business, it's not business as usual, but they need to figure out how to incorporate these entrepreneurial mindsets, entrepreneurial way of thinking, and entrepreneurial skill sets into their businesses. So I think, it's, uh, I think it's really great. And one of the things that Drew, I think, really exemplified very well is he's, he's been pretty fluid in from you know, small companies, startups, to medium-sized companies, to large companies. And I think if you think about a career and building a career, I think that's a skill set uh, that's going to become more and more valuable. If you have the skill set and the ability to navigate your way in a large corporation – as well as uh, in a smaller corporation and show leadership skills and leadership abilities in both of those, uh, I think that's going to be really valuable in the future. Agreed. One isn't better and one isn't worse. They're different. And, you know, the more diverse experiences you can have, I think the better you're going to be at problem solving and dealing with challenges that all businesses face, large or small or profit or nonprofit um, so yeah, I think I think this was a, a, a cool interview with a person um, that I, you know, obviously I have a lot of respect for and, and have a lot of history with, um, but really exemplifies the unconventional path that I think we've been talking about throughout this this podcast series that we've been working on together, Bella. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was a great interview, and uh, I think that was a great summary right there, Mike. And should we wrap this one up? You think? Let's wrap it up, my friend. We're really happy you joined us in our podcasting adventure for this week with Drew Shepard. And we hope you find the last hour interesting and thought-provoking. We have two small requests as usual. First, if you have questions about what we discussed, suggestions about topics or potential guests, or constructive criticism on what we could do better, we're all for it. Get in touch with us via email at bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Second, if you like what we're doing, please take a second and hit subscribe on your podcast app if you haven't. Uh, and even consider being radical and uh, writing us a quick review on your favorite podcasting app. That would be great. Uh, and if you know others that might find this interesting, uh, please do us a favor and share uh, our podcast info with them. That's it for this week. Thanks for spending time with us. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. See you next week, Mike. Thanks, Bela. As always, it was great. See you in a week. This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at busymedia.co.